I think I was sick and tired of myself. I was like, oh, I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. I can't change. And I just had to stand up and just go, I can't do this anymore. I've got a life to live. I've got people that love me and that care about me. And I still have my struggles. I still have the thoughts, but I know what it's going to do. I know how it's coming and I know what is going to happen. So for me, it was knowing that I can't change OCD in that sense, but I can change my response to OCD. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I am so thrilled to be joined today by a man on a mission to raise awareness of the reality of OCD, Sean Flores. When people talk about OCD, they often talk about it as a quirk or something almost productive, but anyone who lives with OCD, like myself, knows this couldn't be further from the truth. Sean has suffered from OCD since he was 27. He initially struggled with obsessive thoughts about his sexuality, and it quickly moved on to harm, in particular, sexual assault. When these thoughts initially took hold, Sean became depressed and life became a burden he no longer wanted to carry. In today's episode, Sean shares his story and talks about why there is an urgent need to develop new and better treatments for OCD, something which is also a big passion of mine. I hope that anyone listening who is struggling with OCD, that Sean's story will reassure you that you can in fact emerge stronger and better. Will you describe to me what you're like as a child? Were you particularly anxious? That's a really good question, actually. In my opinion, I wouldn't say I was an anxious child, but I think my dad's death on Christmas Day when I was six made me probably a lot more anxious. And I think growing up, inevitably, I became anxious because my mum tried to cocoon me and tried to keep me safe as much as she could. She was, To be fair, she was very much an overprotective parent. I was her only child when my dad had died. It was only my, me and my mum left. My All my aunties helped to raise me. So looking back, I became an anxious child, but I wouldn't say I was actually anxious itself. I think my anxiety came as a result of more of a learnt behaviour. So I'll give you an example. If I wanted to do things by myself, my mum wouldn't let me. If I wanted to do other things that perhaps my other friends were doing, I had to rebel and get the freedom to be able to do it. But it took a lot of arguing, a lot of negotiating, a lot of backward and forth. So yeah, I would say... I learned to be anxious, but I wasn't naturally very anxious. So would you say you were particularly sensitive? I would say so, yeah. I'd actually say I was quite a sensitive child. Growing up with aunties that helped to raise me, they put me more in touch with my emotional side, I would say, and they allowed me the freedom to be able to explore. They were very consistent with their love. They took care of me. They they kept the promise to me um, to my dad and my mum when he died, and they said they would help to take care of me. And it was only until I was exposed to 
other boys is when I realized in comparison how sensitive I was. And that's when I started to really hate how sensitive I actually was because the idea of what it meant to be a man was very different with the other boys that I went to my school with. And I went to a school that was 80% black boys and the rest were other ethnicities. So it was a very black dominant culture. And at the time, I remember I, I preferred listening to like R&B, love songs. I actually quite liked a heartbreak song. I remember after my first heartbreak, I listened to Script, The Man Who Can't Be Moved. And I was like, I'm tired of being heartbroken. So I started listening to rap and I changed it from there. So I denied how sensitive I was only in the presence of other people, but I knew deep down how I still was inside. I mean, I think OCD often does start from being hypersensitive and having that slight separation between mind and body and often ruminating and being in your head. And particularly when it comes to friendships early on, I mean, I certainly found that I would always be second guessing whether people liked me and do I fit in here? And why am I caring about achieving straight A's and getting into all the first teams, sports teams, when my best friend actually really doesn't care. It's that whirring mind that I think is often an early manifestation of it. Do you, would you agree? So the more I've actually spoken about my story is the more I've been able to go back and to dissect more of what happened. For me, when I was young, I was actually quite a shy kid. And I was shy because I grew up in quite a conservative home. So all we pretty much did was I, go, I went to school and I went to church on a Saturday and that was it. I didn't really do anything else. It was only until I said to my mum, I want to go out and do a lot more was when I realised, again, I was shy in comparison to other people. But I was quite intelligent. Yet the first experience I would say from, as I said, dissecting my story has been when I worked in an addiction clinic. So I worked with um, some service users who were all struggling with drugs and alcohol addictions. There was a young man that had killed himself as a result of his alcohol addiction and he was gay. His family didn't accept him. I remember this moment the mood in the room was just so down. It was depressing. And when they said he had killed himself, he had hung himself. All I remember was I was just having constant thoughts of suicide. And I said, I'm never going back to this clinic. And I went home and I just cried my eyes out because I couldn't understand why I was having these thoughts. It didn't make sense, but time carried on for a long time after that. And then I had health anxiety and my health anxiety, I thought was normal. You know, I wasn't, I just thought, Everybody has a bit of anxiety about some stuff, but I realized, no, hold up, there's something not quite right. So what happened after that was whenever I had like an intrusive thought around if I had HIV or if I had an STI, I quite literally would cancel all my plans in the day and run to a sexual health clinic and get checked. And you probably notice yourself that no amount of evidence that you get almost gives you the answer that you want. So every time I looked at it, I was like, no, 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 it must be wrong. There's something else that must be going on. Now, after that, I remember I had a dream and this dream was of a guy in boxers and I just woke up 100% convinced I was gay. I remember I looked up at the ceiling and I couldn't stop obsessing. And as a result of the anxiety, I'd thrown up and I just kept looking for evidence. Um, if I was around my male friends and they touched me or if we spent time together, I'd just be sitting in my head ruminating, chewing over the idea that I must be this and I must be that. Then after that, this was the penultimate before the final one, but I was with a girl that I was seeing and just the word rape popped into my head and I just completely had a huge panic attack because for me, I believe to ever have that thought meant that I was going to do it. That's how I almost had processed the idea of how people become a rapist or are rapists. And I screamed at her to leave and I tried to go to sleep. And when I went to sleep, all I saw was slashing images and um, suicide, suicide, suicide kept popping into my head. 
So I called the mental health team and I was convinced I was hearing voices. In my head, I was like, no, no, I'm hearing voices. There's something wrong. There's something not quite right. So I started to see a therapist after that. I saw a psychodynamic therapist. Psychodynamic therapy is the worst thing you could ever possibly have. So they put me further down a rabbit hole, questioning, questioning myself, going over and over and over. And I just couldn't stop. Every day, everything I did was questions from the minute I woke up to the minute I slept. It was anxiety on, it was just on a hamster wheel constantly over and over again. Then when I was out with one of my friends, I was on the bus and there was a guy in front of me and it's the thought, fight him, popped into my head. And I was like, hold up. I had a big breakdown again. Then I said, do you know what? I'm going to be okay. I've been here before. I've had this breakdown. I know how to handle it. I tried to go to a shop to eat some food. And what happened was the suicide image popped into my head. And it was an image of me jumping off of a bridge. I got into an Uber. I was crying my eyes out. I called all my friends and I told them, come around, I'm depressed, I'm suicidal. I looked at my friend dead in his eye and I told him, I want to die. I said, I no longer want to be here because I was at war with my mind, essentially is the best way for me to put it. And for the next three to four days, I was severely depressed, I would say. I didn't want to shower, didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted time to swallow me up. And then it was on Saturday, the 4th of June last year, I found a therapist online and I begged her for a phone call. And as soon as she picked up the phone, I just started crying my eyes out. I just asked her, am I a bad person? Why am I having all these thoughts? And she knew then on day it was OCD because she has a lived experience of OCD as herself and she's a trained therapist. And she essentially helped to save my life. It's given me the freedom to be where I am now mm-hmm. to tell my story. So, Sean, I just want to backtrack a bit because that's a huge amount of information and thank you for sharing it with us. And there are so many points that I relate to. And as you know, with OCD, it morphs into everything. So it will start with something small and then suddenly you'll be thinking about, for me, it would be the number six and then suddenly it turns into being this perfect person and then suddenly it's like I'm having to only converse with right people and your mind starts then going into rumination and the obsessive thoughts start to become far more covert and no one really knows what's going on and it's often it lives inside our brains which I think for lots of people is just so uncomprehensible really that you Mm. can have this second brain wearing away I'm curious as to what age were you when you had your first obsessive thought so in that what you've just described What's the time frame that we're talking and what age were you? I would say 23. And the first obsessive thought was that I had chlamydia because I had caught it before. And this is me just being 100% open. My my girlfriend in my very first relationship had cheated on me and she had given me chlamydia. That was okay, but it was the other time I caught it when I was like, no, 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 hold up. Every time I went to the toilet, I was just always waiting, anticipating something. And anytime I felt something that I felt was off, I would go straight to the clinic. But this is me looking back. I never knew that's what it was at the time. And at my worst, I paid £300 for a same-day test just to prove I didn't have anything. But it just wasn't enough. So I'd say my first symptoms emerged around 23, I would say. Which is interesting because I think often people associate OCD with something that you maybe get in your teens or your early childhood. And in fact, it's just an example that OCD can catch anyone up at any age I'm sure you do reflection in your therapy sessions and things and it's sort of you never know what the underlying cause is necessarily there are lots of causes but from there I mean it was a pretty quick turnaround wasn't it for you I mean within the space of how many years did you then start to really notice a shift so I would say it was I had got past the HIV fear and the chlamydia fear and all the other STI fears But then it was after that, as I said, when I had the dream. 
And I just remember looking up at my ceiling and being like, I'm gay. That was it. It was just a loss of my identity. The, the collapse of my identity absolutely hit me. I threw up. I remember any friend I would be around, I would have command intrusive thoughts, which was kiss him, kiss him, kiss him constantly. And I wouldn't tell my friend. I wouldn't do anything. I would just sit there and just be like, I'm mad. In my head, I'd be like, I'm mad. There's something wrong with me. Why am I having thoughts to kiss him? Is it because I like him? Is it because I can acknowledge he's good looking? Just all these questions over and over and over again. And when I got high one time, I remember I said to my friends, I think I'm gay, you know? And they said to me, it's all right if you are. Like, it's, it doesn't bother us, Sean. But then something changed. I was like, wait, I'm not. It's almost as if the logic had snapped back. But no matter what, these obsessive thoughts couldn't leave me alone. So that's what happened after that. It was the what we call sexual orientation OCD. And you're right that OCD can catch up at any time. And I was reading a recent study that early intervention is better with OCD because OCD is a progressive disorder. And I'm actually writing an article on it, condensed in the study for people to actually understand. The earlier we can catch OCD is the less it can torment people in the future because mm. there's many different subsets of OCD. But, you know, like myself and yourself it caught up with us rampantly mm. because probably we didn't have any early detection tools. And from the community that I'm from, you don't talk about mental health necessarily. Mm. You keep it under wraps. I remember when I shared my story with the world, my mom said to me, are you sure you want to do that? I said, yeah, why not? And she said to me, people are going to judge you. You know, you might not get a job. I said, well, so be it. They, that's all that they can do. But I understood that for my mom, it was a very real fear. Whereas for me, I'm prepared for the consequences and the ramifications that come with speaking about my OCD story. So what then was your friend's reaction? Because as you said, you grew up in an environment where mental health wasn't necessarily something that was a subject that people were open about, nor was it common to come across a guy like you suffering with OCD. What gave you the courage to speak up? Well, this is a really good question again, because the moment for me was, I remember I was still in therapy and I used to see my therapist once a week. And I said to her, I need to see you twice a week because the breaks between our therapy sessions were too long. I was still modeling at the time. I was still having to try and work, but my mind was not in half of the things that I was doing. I was going through a lot of depersonalization and derealization. I remember I would eat food. And you've probably had this, but the food's taste is absolutely blunted. There's no taste, nothing. I was eating simply for purpose and for function, essentially. And it was... I can't remember the exact day, but I was having all the schizophrenia thoughts. I was having the thoughts that I'm hearing voices, I'm seeing things. And I quite literally just said to myself, fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm sick and tired of being depressed. I'm sick and tired of laying in my bed all day and crying and being upset. I have to change my life. So I went downstairs and I opened up my Google documents and I just started to write my story. And the very first article, which actually hasn't even been put out, was... Black and white thinking, how a black man was saved by a white therapist. And me and my therapist talk about this all the time because this was in the wake of like Black Lives Matter had happened. There was a lot of racial tension. And my therapist and I are from two different worlds. She's a white Scottish lady and I'm a young black inner city boy. And when I thought only a black therapist could save me at the time, which is understandable based on the culture, she saved my life. She doesn't know everything that I've gone through in terms of my life, but I can try and articulate my story as best as I can to her. But she was the big catalyst, the massive catalyst for my change and for me telling my story. And I said to her, why do you believe in me so much? She said, because you're going to go on to change the world and you're going to go on to raise the profile of our OCD. And I said, how can I ever say thank you? She said, pay it forward. And since then, that's what I've just tried to do. But it was my therapist, I would say, is 
was the biggest conduit for change in my life. And if it wasn't for Emma Garrick, the anxiety whisperer on Instagram, I would not be where I am. And I mean that of every part of me because what OCD was doing to me, I remember I was having to cut myself thoughts, right? And I would get a knife and I'd hold it to my wrist and I'd be like, why is there no feeling? And obviously that we now, now I know it's called a compulsion. I'd go to bed and this cut myself foot was obsessive. It just wouldn't stop coming. It wouldn't stop coming. I called Samaritans three nights in a row, upset, distraught. I just couldn't understand what was going on in my head. I was contemplating on ways to take my life. And I was thinking, do I jump off a, a bridge with a book in my bag? Do I get a gun? Do I stab myself? Do I take pills? And I said to myself, if I don't sleep, I will kill myself. And I woke up and I, and I was crying. I was like, why am I thinking like that? And all of these things were happening. So that's why when I woke up and I decided to tell my story, I was like, OCD was the worst thing to ever happen to me, but I'll be the worst thing to ever happen to OCD. It's quite literally my motto. Yes, and it's a very good motto because the more we stand up to the bully, mm. the more it dies. And actually you've got to look at it in the eyes and you've got to say it on a, even an hourly, second by second basis, I... I'm not going to go with what you say, OCD. You're telling me to go left and I will go right. Yeah. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. What do you think was that spark that made you go down to your computer and start typing? I think I was sick and tired of myself in, in many ways. And obviously sometimes for some people, depression is a, is a rumination about the past and sometimes your current situation that won't change. But for me, depression was almost the choice where I was like, oh, I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. I can't change. I'm never going to be able to get back to normal. And I remember I scoured the internet and... I was getting triggered by reading stories, you know, like on there's the forums on Reddit and there's Facebook groups, people going, I can't get over my OCD. And I was reading all this. I'm never going to get better. I was never going to get better. And I just had to stand up one day. And as I said, in my bed and just go, I can't do this anymore. I've got a life to live. I've got people that love me and they care about me. And I wish I knew what it was exactly, but I think I was... When I was modeling, I used to starve myself. And this is actually, looking back, I say funny, not funny. I can look at it from a reflective lens. But I remember when I first started modeling, this was very years ago, I was getting a lot of positive um, reinforcement about my cheekbones at the time. And I used to starve myself as much as I could just to maintain cheekbones. Because if any time I ate food or carbs, it would increase. I would starve myself from morning up until the evening and probably eat a salad. And there were times I used wanted to pass out on set. And I looked at these parts of my life and I realized I've overcome, not I wouldn't say worse, but I've overcome other things. How can this not be now something that I overcome? Mm-hmm. I still have my struggles. I still have the thoughts. I've even had OCD dreams. I think a lot of us have even had OCD dreams. I've had the incest dreams. I've had the murder dreams. I've had it all. I've had everything you could imagine. But I know what it's going to do. I know how it's coming and I know what's going to happen. So... For me, it was knowing that I can't change OCD in that sense, but I can change my response to OCD. And that's what's so fascinating about OCD is for so long, certainly in my case, I thought it was my friend. It was serving some purpose. It made me feel a bit safe. It made me feel like I had the sense of purpose. It made me feel that I was 
serving this master and it was almost in that I felt okay. And actually, as soon as you can turn that round and see that it's literally killing you and you have got to walk through that fire to get out the other side. And that's something that I've discovered in recovery is there's no way around the fire. You have got to walk through it and it is horrible. And at times it feels so overwhelming and I'm having an obsessive thought even sitting here at the moment. Something can ignite in your head or you'll see something that's new or that triggers something and suddenly you'll go back into that ruminative, oh my God. And I know sitting here, I've got to fight it and I'm here and I'm present and I want to be focused on you. But there's that whirring anxiety that's going on in my head and I'm like why can it not just go just go away but actually you've just got to let it be there but not react to it and I think again like you say in recovery it's getting that strength to be able to say okay thank you for being there but I'm actually not going to listen to you and I am going to do opposite action and I'm going to say to you right well instead of going down that road and doing exactly what you want me to do I'm going to sit here and do absolutely nothing about it and not engage in the compulsion and that's why OCD grows, is the more it's self-reinforcing. Because you think that you to negate the obsessive thought, you can do the compulsion. But the more that you do the compulsion, the more that the obsessive thoughts come. And you're literally on this hamster wheel and you are just fueling it constantly. So it's almost, it is cancerous. Well, it's a snake that eats itself. Mm. I think it's quite often the analogy that I use. And you're right, you have to walk through the fire. You cannot avoid the fire. You know, when I was at the worst of my OCD breakdown last year, I still had to do things, even when I didn't want to do anything. You know, you're right. We, we still all have triggers, but one of the best things that I've been able to understand with OCD is that your brain can change. Those neural pathways, neuroplasticity exists. You have to retrain your brain. And one thing I learned with anxiety, I remember I was so angry with anxiety and I looked up a channel called Dr. Tracy Marks and there's also therapy in a nutshell. And I said, when anxiety is there, if you fight anxiety every single time, you're teaching anxiety at something for it to give attention to, essentially. Whereas when you go, as you said, you're allowed to be there. I'm just going to get on with what I've got to do. You teach anxiety and you teach your brain, most importantly, that we can survive. We can get through this. And that's a problem because once you trigger that fight or flight reaction in your brain, you literally think, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And that's what's going on neurologically. So I think neuroplasticity is another key point that you make, is that our brain's can change. And when you're in the thick of OCD, I think there's that tendency to think, oh my God, this is my destiny. And that's why it can be so depressing because you just can't lift yourself out of it. So what I would love for you to talk about is your treatment now. And that's obviously been transformational. And what was the magic touch? Do you know what's really interesting? So OCD was what happened last year. Then I tore my ACL and MCL and meniscus and fractured my leg in football. Then I ended up in hospital for three days with pneumonia. And that that's not even the end of the story. So I'll take you through the pneumonia. So I remember I was speaking to Dr. Nick Saru, who runs Orchard OCD, who I volunteer with. And I I begged him for a phone call because the obsessive thoughts were getting worse when I was ill. You know, when you're tired, you're depleted, obsessions get worse, the anxiety gets worse. So I went up to 100 milligrams of sertraline. Worst decision I ever made, genuinely. I could not sleep. I was having the conveyor belt thoughts. I remember the doctor came in and checked up on me because I was up at three o'clock in the morning, convinced I was going to kill everyone. I was crying in the corner. You know the IV drip? There's the IV drip that you throw on top. I think it's essentially what you do. I remember I walked up to it and I was thinking, how do I take my life? Because in my head, I believed again the thoughts. And I put my neck up on top of it and I was like, oh, hold up. I cried again. I was like, what are you doing? You can't believe every story that's in your head. So I got um, let go out of the hospital after my pneumonia had passed. and. 
I stayed on f- 100 milligrams sertraline for around three months. I could barely sleep. I felt horrendous. And the mental health team wanted to put me on 150. And I was like, at this point, you want to put me on more? I could barely handle 100. So I came back down off 100, came back down to 50. I've been on 50 and I'm going to break away to 25 and then zero and come off. But the magic touch for me was having the therapist that really understood me. We did the exposure. She helped me get better. I have had to do all the scripts, you know, where you've got to write the scripts. I had to do the rape scripts, the schizophrenia scripts, the gay scripts. And I remember there was times I was just crying my eyes out writing these scripts. And the anxiety was so high. It was it was ridiculous. And after the sessions, I'll just sleep. I, my brain couldn't really cope with anything else. And I'd wake up and be like, oh, I'm okay. So just take us through what a script is for people who don't know what a script is. So OCD throws your worst fears at you. And with a script, what you're essentially doing is you're putting yourself in within your worst fears. So my worst fear was becoming a rapist, essentially. It was probably, I think it's a lot of lo- good men, logical men's fears, but it probably doesn't plague them as much as it does. Um, for example, someone like me with OCD. So I had to write a script of how I'm going to do it, where I'm going to do it, who I'm going to kidnap, how I'm going to get them. And I remember I was just crying my eyes just throughout it because I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. She said, my therapist, as much as she was loving, she was the harshness that I also needed. She said, you need to do this. You need to do this. And when I did it, yeah, writing these scripts, writing the stories out, writing how I'm going to do it, watching the TV shows for exposures, being around female friends for exposures, being around people that I thought were good looking as guys for exposures. So I practice what I call an ERP lifestyle where I still have the thoughts, you know, I go to the sauna and steam room and the minute I can acknowledge a guy's got a good body, I'm like, all right, here we go again. But I just have to sit with it. I've just got to go, whatever, man, don't bother me. Mm-hmm. Do whatever you want to do. Or if I'm around a female friend and I get the thought and I just got to be like, oh, cool, whatever. Hug them. I, I do everything I can just to remind myself that it's okay. It's a thought. It's nothing it can do to me. So that ERP lifestyle. But I also signed up for a psilocybin OCD trial with Imperial College London, where they're testing out the therapeutic capabilities of um, psilocybin, which is the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms. And I tripped twice. So the first time was placebo, but the second time I actually tripped. And that was also quite revolutionary for me because what we understand about magic mushrooms is it enhances neuroplasticity in the brain. It shuts down the default mode network. So those fixed ideas of who you are. If I said to you, Pandora, who are you? You give me certain answers. Mushrooms allows you to explore the other parts of your brain that don't ordinarily get to fire. So it opens up these other different parts. With that neuroplasticity, you have the ability to learn new habits a lot better. And the best analogy I give to people is your brain is almost, it's like snow, but you've stepped in the snow. What mushrooms do is they wipe the slate clean and they give you new snow to step in. So that's been also really revolutionary for me. And reading, getting clued up on it has been great. But for me, I would say it's been a combination of an incredible therapist, also with um, the magic mushrooms and having an ERP lifestyle, understanding these thoughts are not going anywhere. I have to live with them. And it's okay to live with these thoughts. They say nothing about who I am. And just sitting here listening to you, it's incredibly helpful for me because I also lead that exposure response prevention lifestyle and it is exhausting. But it's very interesting because people who don't have access to private therapists and people who can't afford to do the exposure work with someone who's 
on the end of a phone or can do Zoom sessions, it's a real minefield because the NHS won't treat cases unless they're apps at complete critical point. Yeah, I begged the NHS to put me on an OCD ward. Me too. I begged them. I quite literally said to them, please, I need to go on an OCD ward. Funny enough, in terms of a private treatment, I still owe my therapist about two grand, but my therapist is super chilled because she knows that it's going to come. But when I spoke to the NHS on the Saturday as well, they told me to buy a book called Break Free from OCD, but you've probably been there. You're not in a space to read anything. And we know that OCD has about 89p spent per patient per year on research, whereas depression has eight pounds to nine pounds spent. It's ridiculous. OCD is way too trivialized and way too misunderstood. And we still have decided that it's all cleaning, it's all symmetry, but there's way more to it. And I think a lot of people's opinions are based on, you know, obsessive compulsive cleaners on Channel 4 first aired in 2013, that's a lot of the ideas that sit with people. Whereas people don't understand that. One of my friends I spoke to yesterday, she described OCD as almost like having a bee's nest around your head. And it's just buzzing constantly, trying to get your attention, trying to scream at you for your attention. So the whirlwind of our minds with OCD, people really have to... There's only so many metaphors we can use to describe it, but you have to live inside the head of someone with OCD to really understand what goes on. So. I want to know what you see as being the future for OCD treatment and how we can help more people. I'll start with your second question, how we can help more people. In my opinion, the way that I'm going to try and help more people is I want to try and become a therapist. That's one of my plans. I want to do an accredited course and I want to try and make mental health services a lot more accessible to people. Because you're right, you and I are in an incredibly privileged place to be able to have people that care about us, have people that would help us. Whereas I know... Many other people don't have that privilege. So I want to be able to do that for people. I want to be able to run a a service based on that, ideally. So a lot of the work I'm also trying to do outside of that is I'm hoping and aiming to deliver two TED Talks on OCD um, and also the future of psychedelic treatment. I think psychedelics are proven to be revolutionary for when it comes to anxiety-based disorders and any other mental illnesses and disorders. So ketamine, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, it's an exciting revolution coming up. When I look at the current treatment of OCD, we know that the the options are limited. You know, you've got ERP, you've also got antidepressants, but there's also something that's just come out of Canada, which is inference-based CBT. So that's another potential treatment that a lot of people are actually now starting to explore. Also, when I look at some of the residential places that offer OCD treatment, most people can't afford four grand. The average person in London, I think, doesn't even have up to 800 pounds in their savings, if I remember correctly. We have to make it more accessible. And why this is important is because when you have a society that's functioning, they add more to the society than having people who aren't quote-unquote functioning. If you take better care of people, they can put more into the system, which inevitably creates greater output for people. So that's the best. You have to almost argue with a capitalist about why we need to be able to exploit people by having them fully functioning rather than not having them functioning. So it's about trying to make that argument. As well, what I've, I think is the biggest issue that we have with OCD and treatment is we don't have enough research that's being pushed out. As I said, if the average OCD patient has 89p spent on research, whereas with depression, it's eight to nine pounds, that's a drastic cut with money. So the more conversations, for example, like people like yourself and I have using the platforms that we have, we inform people and we get people to understand that OCD is not a meaningless, trivial mental illness. It incapacitates people. 
it leaves some people stuck for years in their house. Some people never leave their rooms. Some people can't just get over it. And one of the biggest things I've had to really get people to understand is OCD takes lives. And one of my biggest questions I always ask, especially as a man, is I know how much I suffered with these thoughts. How many other men have killed themselves as a result of their thoughts? I've had messages from people. A guy literally messaged me and he said, you saved my life. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I saw your story. I said, he said, I 100% have OCD. He said, please, can we have a phone call? We had a phone call and he started to see a therapist. I've had hundreds of messages from people that suffer in absolute torment and silence. And especially from the community that I'm from, I'm hoping that with my addition to the OCD community, which I think quite often has a certain kind of representation and quite often it's a white female Mm -hmm. space, which is no fault of the people within it because other people just don't talk about their OCD because of the challenges and the stigmas. Mm -hmm. But I think the wider the representation we have with OCD is the more audiences we can reach for people to actually understand that, hold up, there's a dire need for people to get the help that they actually, well, deserve most importantly. So to finish up, I want to ask you, you've talked about wanting to become a therapist and I am interested because do you think that you can reach enough people by just being a therapist? I would like to believe I could reach a good handful of people by becoming a therapist because when people message me, I would love to be able to actually help people, you know, with the right tools and so much more, but I can't. I can only really give them some advice and some tips without trying to reassure them or play into their compulsions. Or I can just signpost them. That's the only so much I can do. So not only becoming a therapist, but I do freelance journalism. So I had a piece in the Metro that I wrote about my story. I was interviewed by iNews, interviewed by BBC News. I've got a lot more articles coming out. So I wrote a recent piece on why we need more ethnic minorities in OCD trials. And I'm going to be writing a new piece about the importance of early intervention of OCD. So I'm trying to not only when I become a therapist, that space, but I want to use the social media platforms that I have for good because freelance journalism is fantastic. I'm going to reach more people with that. I want to use the collaborations I have with other charities because people forget quite often that I never got a lot of what I got from being handed to me. I've had to, my friends and I laugh about it. They call me a legal harasser. I will bother the life out of people to get an audience of them. For me to be able to tap into their audience so I can help more people and I can reach more people. I even had, again, a message yesterday from a lady that said, I saw your stuff and I have OCD as well. I'd love to know how can I join your WhatsApp group. That's what I do it for. So using the mechanisms of social media, my journalism, my public speaking as well, I'm I'm hoping that I can eventually get a TED talk so it reaches more of a global community because we know TEDx, not to downplay, it's a big achievement, but TEDx is more for a smaller local community and probably using the power of marketing. I think marketing is a such an important thing. So it's a good question because I know I have to use many facets to get the message out there because one is never going to really be enough. Well, I look forward to collaborating, Sean, and I just can't thank you enough for coming today because you're inspirational and certainly so much of your story resonates with me and will resonate with so many other people. So a huge, huge thank you. No, I'm thankful for you giving me a space on your platform to be able to tell the story. There's so many of us out there and that's what's the most important thing. So the space you've provided me, hopefully it changes people's lives and lets people know, most importantly, they're not alone and they never were alone. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.